let's go back to the beginning, if we may. At what age did you get your diagnosis and what brought it on? Uh, I was 14 when I first got diagnosed with depression. It was in the October of 2013. My sister had just gone to university and I found having a family member taken away just very challenging. We were very, very close. I also picked up a minor injury, so I tore the ligament in my upper back, uh, meaning I couldn't play football, and just went down in a downward spiral. Um, I get a buzz from playing football. That's where I get my endorphins from. And suddenly I couldn't do that. So all the stresses and anxiety sort of all built up, um, and I just found myself crying on end all the time. During the October half term, uh, just literally was just crying every single day. I would walk on for miles on end or run for miles just so, to pass the time, just so I could wait for the day to, to end. And I refused to go into school. I just felt like I couldn't deal with anything, deal with anyone. So my dad booked an emergency appointment with my doctor and he immediately diagnosed me with depression and prescribed fluoxetine, which is an antidepressant. I was going to ask you about the treatment that you underwent. So it was obviously antidepressants in the in the beginning as well. Did you do yeah. anything else, like something like cognitive behavioural therapy, for example, as well? Good question. I got offered a course of CBT, yes, but um, unfortunately the waiting time was about six to nine months, by which time medication had kicked in uh, and I found myself in a better place. So when the CBT course did come around and they offered it to me, I had a few few like family sessions and a few sessions, um, but I, I was just done with it all and I just wanted to forget about my, my dark experiences and just wanted to move on. So the, the, the help was offered, but I kind of wanted to give it to someone else who needed it at the time. I needed it, but like six months earlier, so I declined the the course offered. As we were saying at the top of the interview, you were at your lowest point three months ago. You'd written a note and you were ready to kill yourself. What yep. was going through your mind at that time? Um, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. It's very hard to describe it. Sort of, there was no sort of feeling of time. It was, yeah, it was, it was challenging. I just felt like that was the best option for me. I felt like I was sort of an outsider looking in on my life. I felt like there was no light and nothing to look forward to. I didn't really think about what other people would think if I if I wasn't there anymore. That didn't cross my mind. People sometimes see suicide as selfish, but when you're in that position, you don't even think about other people. You just think, you know, this pain needs to end. And yeah, I, I almost felt a sense of relief that that I could finally sort of beat my demons and, and sort of like end it all. It's, it's a horrific thing to think, but that's the, that's the place that I was in. And it's a horrible, horrible place that I would never wish anyone would go. And what pulled you back from the brink? Um, it's very difficult to, to pinpoint sort of one particular thing. I'd love to say, oh, I had like a eureka moment and suddenly everything lit up because that's just not how it is. Um, being real being real and honest, that's just not how it is. I remember the morning that I'd planned to take my own life. I just lay in my bed and I knew as soon as I left my bed that I would go and jump in front of a train. That's what I had planned and that's what I was going to do. And a sort of sudden knock at the door came about and it was very unexpected. And it was my mum just asking if I wanted to, to, to have a coffee. Um, her and my dad were, were going out to, to grab some takeaway coffees and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love one. Like, my parents had no idea what I was, that I was in, in that lower point and just a tiny sort of moment of kindness and a kind of distraction from the hell that was going on in my mind was the kind of needed break that I need that I that I needed and um yeah that was the thing that took me away from that dark dark place it was a it was a long journey from there onwards but that was the thing that kind of made me think you know life's made up of so many little tiny things that just make 
life worth living, like coffee and <laughs> football. And like, that was the thing that kind of pulled me from that really, really intense moment. It's not the thing that saved my life. I think that was an accumulation of things, but that's the thing that kind of distracted me from that really, really intense moment. And in November, you've tweeted about this already, and you've been very, very vocal on Twitter and very, if I, if I may say that, I'm very, very open and honest mm-hmm. about your experiences. You were yep. in a mental health unit in November as a day patient, yep. and you openly said that you self-harmed and overdosed. Yep. What was that like? What was going through your mind at that time? It was, again, it was a very difficult time. So I was a patient for three weeks. I, it's very strange to put the two together. So you're a patient, you should be being cared for, and yet you're self-harming and overdosing. Like The two should not go together. But, I, I mean, I still felt incredibly low. My medication was being messed about all the time, and often with antidepressants, things go down before they go up, which is very difficult to deal with. I wasn't Obviously, I wasn't necessarily safe. Just because you're safe during the day in hospital doesn't mean you're not safe at home. And, yeah, I just obviously... During the day when you do therapy sessions, either on your own or with a group, you can touch some difficult subjects and sometimes you just need like a release or a way of expressing those emotions. And for me, that was it, self-harming. It was very, very difficult. And like often I go to bed, you know, with my sheets sort of wet with my own blood. It was a, it was a horrific time. But, you know, that's just the, how it was and that's just what's happening. You know, just because somebody is so-called safe in hospital as a patient... You know, things were happening in the evening, which, you know, weren't helping me at all. And when I was discharged from hospital, it was after that moment that I wrote the suicide letter and that I reached my lowest point. So was I discharged too early? Was the care not continued in the correct way? Like, that's who knows. But mental health battles are ones that can be won. And you are very much winning yours at the moment. What's been the key to getting things back on track? And just how good have your coaches, friends and family been? I think it's all about mindset. I think once you've reached that lowest point, things can only go up. And it's believing in yourself and having faith in, in what you're able to do. But I think talking is a huge, huge, huge part. Um, I think having when you have a bad day, even like in recovery, people have bad days. And that, that's just going to happen, you know, for probably for the rest of my life. There'll be bad days. There'll be bad weeks. And I think it's more about accepting where you are and how you feel. And talking about how you feel. Yeah, my coaches have been amazing in offering support when I was at my lowest points, as were friends. Family was a difficult one. found it hard to open up to my family, but I think it's more about... It's not necessarily choosing people to open up to because they've got a particular name, so opening up to your parents because you have to, but opening up to somebody who you trust and being able to live with the mental illness in your household doesn't necessarily mean opening up to a parent it's more about how you deal with it on a day-to-day basis as opposed to necessarily talking to them about how you feel all the time because that's not going to work for everyone and I think it's important to stress that so yeah I think talking is key I think believing in yourself having faith and just being open with people talking of being open you've clearly made a lot of friends by being as open as you were about your experiences Neville Southall (laughs) is one of your really big friends at the moment it seems on Twitter yeah what does that mean to you because he's a, a footballing legend really yeah absolutely that was a bit of a shock to be honest when he first sort of popped up he actually messaged me first he's just like such a nice guy and it's like a privilege to to have him like on my side and we, we do message each other like very often and he's really up for supporting everything I do and he can't he's kind of given me a voice which I honestly really really appreciate yeah just really privileged to have him sort of on my side and as a kind of mentor I guess um, an absolute legend and yeah meeting him at the end of end of March you tweet Neville a lot as you were saying there and you message each other a lot mm-hmm. but what has really inspired you to tweet so openly and did the openness of say Clark Carlisle has been through a similar thing and Billy Key and other footballers help I think 
I've always been fairly open with my experiences. So in 2015, when I'd kind of gone through my first bout of depression, uh, I shared my story at my school sports awards um, and I got an award for it. And the response I got from that was just incredible. And I was really honoured by, you know, some of the things that people said to me and the respect I got from that. So I kind of always knew that I would be open with my experiences, but I didn't know that I would take to Twitter as my platform. But I think it just only seemed right. As you say, the, you know, the the pro players that have come out has has inspired me. But I think it was always something that I was going to do. I've always been passionate and I've always wanted people to speak out. I think Twitter is the ideal platform and has enabled me to you know, promote my book as it has and get sort of the likes of Neville involved. I want to come on to the book now, actually. It's an e-book as well. Yeah. How is that doing and how therapeutic was it to write? Because sometimes it is easier to write down in words and articulate how we feel in words. And I guess it's the same with Twitter as well. Yeah, definitely. I didn't plan of publishing a a book. About just over a month ago, I just sat down uh, in my room and just like wrote down all my experiences, the darkest moments that nobody knew about except me. And that was the therapeutic part because the darkest moments were now off my shoulders and like my family could read about them and they'd never heard them before so I read it to my my parents and I also read it to one of my coaches who's a a guy I train with in St Neots and he's actually the one that said to me look you've got to get that published there are bits in there that will resonate with so many people so I took his advice as I usually do and yeah I got it published it was incredibly therapeutic to get it it literally just feels like a weight off my shoulders and yeah it's, it's doing well I've sold over 230 copies so far and yeah I was amazed when it sold 20 I was buzzing <laughs> so it's it's like such an amazing thing as I said I didn't write it for anyone in particular I wrote it for myself so for it to have reached that amount of people and more it's just incredibly overwhelming last year logic alessia cara and khalid released a song called 1-800-273-8255 which is the number for the u.s suicide helpline mm-hmm. just how important is it for people in the public eye to do their bit because really many celebrities suffer with their mental health as well yeah i think suicide as a whole is something that we need to talk about more i would love to be at a stage in society where we talk about suicide like we talk about divorce like we talk about redundancy they're difficult words to discuss but they're just part of normality i mean suicide is the biggest killer in men under 35 and yet no one really knows that and no one's really willing to do anything about it you know suicide affects so many people i know if i'd taken my own life think about the knock-on effect that has on so many other people one of the things that stopped me from taking my own life was the fact that one of my family members might possibly you know suffer from depression because of it and i just would never wish that on anyone and that's one of my sort of protecting factors as to why i didn't take my own life so i think as a society, we just need to open up and need to talk. I think what people, a common misconception is that if you talk to someone about taking their own life or talk to them about suicidal thoughts, that they'll go and do it. That's not the case. Asking someone about their suicidal thoughts is actually a really positive thing. Just getting people to talk is so important and just being open about your struggles is, is really, really important. Of course, we're just a few days away now from this mental health awareness evening. How are the preparations going for that and how pleased are you to be a part of it? I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to sort of do my first sort of bit of public speaking. Obviously, I'm quite nervous, but we'll see how it goes. I'm really excited to be sharing my story and sort of the name of this one is It's Okay to Talk. And I couldn't be more passionate about that title. There are some real pivotal people in my journey, like my biology teacher, for example, in year 13, who just really, really helped me. It was there as an ear anytime I needed it, helped me get through school. So to be able to sort of give my sort of gratitude to him and yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm really pleased to be a part of such a great event that will hopefully help at least somebody in the audience. We should point out you're just 18 years old and you've been through an awful lot, but things look bright for you. 
I'll say that with conviction that your openness will have helped somebody else. And this year, you're also going to be running and cycling for charity as well. Tell us more about that. I am indeed. So I wanted to do a challenge. I've been challenged mentally. I don't think you can get more challenged mentally. So I wanted to utilise that mental strength that I've developed. And I obviously, I wanted to be physically challenged as well. So at the end of July, I will be running a half marathon. And then the day after, I'll be completing the Prudential Ride London. So that's 100 miles cycling for Samaritans. Samaritans is an incredible charity that saves lives like every single day. I've rang them a few times and anybody with any problem can ring them. And I just wanted to express how grateful I am for the support that they do by raising some money for them. And obviously want to challenge myself at the same time. Thank you so much and well done for being so brave and honest because that won't have been easy for you to do so. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in today's Cambridge conversation, there are lots of great support outlets out there. The Samaritans can be reached on 116 123, or you can email joe at samaritans.org, and joe is spelt J-O. There are also lots of other outlets too, including the Campaign Against Living Miserably, Mind, Sane, Rethink, and many others, and we'd certainly urge you to contact one of those if you or someone you know is struggling.